From Indian Wells, near the west coast of the US, play has now moved on to Miami on the east. And with that, it's a very warm welcome from me, Seb Lozier, to the latest ATP podcast. And it's another cracking lineup we have. Later on, we'll hear from more top coaches, Liam Smith, Janko Tipsarevic and Brad Gilbert, as we continue to serve up masterclasses from the World Tennis Conference. But first, in among the basketball, NFL and new Formula One fervor, tennis is taking centre stage in Miami this week. And it's a stage that was last exited in 2021 by this man. My moment and time being crowned Miami Open champion 2021. What a week, what a tournament it has become for Hubert Hercatch. The practice sessions weren't, weren't going really good, so to be honest, I didn't expect that much out of the you know tournament. I wanted to you know play a decent first round and try to get myself into the tournament. From Poland, please welcome Hubert Perkup representing Canada. Denis Shapovalov. I mean, definitely needed to improve my game. I mean, Denis played an amazing match here, and I knew I need to need to step up the level. So I was just. You know, in my mind, I, I was just very focused on the things that I need to do on the court. A strike of pure quality. What a start for Hubert Hurkacz. From Canada, Milos Raonic. It was super close match. I mean, uh, definitely with Milos serve and how powerful this game, his game is, and uh, I was just. Uh, uh, you know, you don't want to like miss the opportunities, but at the end, at the beginning of the set, uh, set I did miss them, and I was just uh, trying to, you know, to, to get myself uh, back into the game, to focus on the things that I need to do on the court, and I just continued to, to fight for every single point. From Greece, Stefano Sissipas. Yeah, I me. Mean, he was set up break up and uh, and like 15-40 on my serve, so it was, uh, uh, he, was, he was pretty close, but uh, I just kept fighting and tried to stay a little bit more consistent and I was just uh, just positive and just was continue to, to fight for, for every single point there. It's fabulous tennis. Uh, I was playing some very good tennis and definitely that was a good performance. I was, uh, you know, super happy, maybe a little bit tight towards the end of the match, but, but very happy to, to, to come through it. Oh, that is well done. Definitely super motivated, I think, you know, I was at that point of the tournament, you know, I came through a couple of really tough matches and I was, was feeling confident. I believed in myself, so you know, and it was, was already semi-finals. From Russia, Andrei Rublev. Both men looking for a first Masters 1000 final. Heavy strike and catch. He's done it. Hubert Hercatch is a man on a mission in Miami. That's back-to-back -to -back top 10 victories for the pole. 
A very warm welcome to finals day at the Miami Open. What a day for these two youngsters. Then the conditions were actually a little bit windy and Yannick's super big hitter, like the, the, the way he hits the ball, it's, it's a joke. So definitely stay with him patiently in the rallies and uh, just just be super solid throughout the, the whole match. From Poland, please welcome Hubert Perkacz. From Italy, Yannick starts the break back. I mean, it started off good because had an early break, but then, then he broke me back and uh, he, was, uh, he found a better rhythm and I was struggling a little bit. He was actually serving for the first set and I managed to, 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 to get a break and get into the tiebreak. Tiebreaker started pretty good for me. And from then on, I was I was leading a tiebreaker pretty convincingly. So was had some couple of set points in a row. So so that definitely makes it you know easier to, to close out the set. Second set, Cena to two. After that, I started very well. The second set, I was like up to like four love lead and. I think I might have even have like some break points for, for 5-0. So like was super close and suddenly, you know, I got broken and it's 4-3. Uh, it's so it's, it's, it's close again. So, so definitely it was quite tight at the, at the end. You can almost feel the tension. Oh, that is sensational from Sinner. What a strike. That's great tennis, a nice move forward. For love becomes for two. So yeah, definitely I was trying to, to stay in the rallies because uh, you know he's very aggressive, he's super solid as well. So just probably at that point, I just wanted to make every single ball and uh, get to every single ball throughout the, the whole rally. And I was just very patient at the, uh, at the end. Her catch is a master in Miami. It was a very special moment for me. I mean, winning a master title. So I was super happy that made that next step in my career. The 24-year-old is the first Pole to win here and the first from Poland ever to win a Masters 1000 singles title. Just a huge moment for, for me and uh, also I hope I you know, inspired some, some people in, in Poland to, to enjoy tennis, to, to play some tennis and, and younger kids that uh, you know it's, it's possible like you can do it. Yeah, what a day for Hubert Hercatch. Hubert Hercatch speaking with ATP Uncovered about beating Italy's Yannick Sinner to win his first Masters 1000 title this time last year. And now let's hear from a man who's just achieved that very same feat in Indian Wells last weekend. Taylor Fritz is the king in California. He wins his very first Masters 1000 trophy. He ends Nadal's run. And he's the first American men's champion here since Agassi in 2001. It is a day he will remember for the rest of his life. Made all the more special because it's come on home territory. I went home. Had tried to have a little celebration, but I had to wake up the next morning for an MRI uh, on the ankle. Uh, 
obviously good good results from the MRI or else I wouldn't be here. Didn't permanently uh, mess myself up by playing on the last day, which is the good news. You know, no stress fractures, nothing with things that the doctors were kind of worried about before the match. I mean, I was told that I'm not going to make it worse. Um, basically, how I was able to go from thinking I had no chance of playing to being able to play with pretty much no pain is I got two shots before the match of lidocaine. So I played on, I just basically couldn't feel my ankle. My foot was just numb for the finals. And I really didn't think I had any chance of playing until we actually did that. And then I went back out, started moving around a little bit. And I was like, you know what, like this is actually like, I could probably, could probably play on this. And so uh, sucks that in the finals, Rafa was also um, injured dealing with something. And obviously before the match, I thought, it seemed like my injury was much more serious, but then when we got on the court, obviously my injury was not such a concern. Uh, so don't want to have to numb it up again to play. Obviously that's not the best idea. Um, just kind of taking anti-inflammatories, icing it, trying to get it down as much as possible. The, the results from the MRI were more like, uh, it's just really inflamed fluid in the joint, making it really tough for me to move around and causing this really sharp kind of pinching pain when I try to push off of it. So it's just all about kind of getting that down and making sure I feel good and I don't want to elongate this thing into something that lasts for, for months. In looking back on the week, obviously the drama with the win over Rublev and obviously the final, you had a couple of tough ones before that and I think that might kind of get lost and I, and I wonder how you're reflecting on those two third set tie breaks um, previous to the semifinal and final now. Yeah, it's, I haven't, like, when I have thought about it, it's like, wow, I really could have been out of the tournament. This, this whole week that's, like, seriously, like, life-changing, it could have really easily not happened. I could have been out in the third round. I could have been out in the fourth round. Um, you know, Paul Anacone always tells me that good players are defined by their ability to win and their ability to just get through matches when they're not playing their best and when they're just their average level can, can get them through. And... That's a lot what kind of what did it for me in the third round match. I just kind of fought through a match where I maybe wasn't playing my best. And then, you know, I had a rough first set against Demon R. And then I thought I played really well and recovered and, you know, played solid in the, in the second and the third. So it's just kind of uh, I'm really proud of how I was able to get through matches, maybe not playing my absolute best tennis. Yeah, and, I, and on top of it, you know, from my, my vantage point of the Rublev match, it's kind of what I've seen from you for so many years, just playing those big clutch points so well. And I wonder how you kind of reframed for yourself after a couple more difficult tournaments the last two heading into Indian Wells. Yeah, um, it was I, was, I was in a pretty, honestly, like bad mindset after um, Dallas and Acapulco because I felt like it was two matches that I, I lost two matches that I felt like I had won and I had not, the issue in those matches was I had not played the big points well. I lost, I, I think on the good side, I, was, I knew I was playing good tennis. I felt like I should have won those matches if I just played a couple points a little better. But then on the, on the bad side, is like that's the most important part of my game and my, me having good results is being clutch and being good in those pressure situations. So um, I just went into any wells, like trying to get as much practice before the tournament as possible so I could just be as confident as possible, trust myself as much as possible. and. 
Obviously, when you're playing those matches that you're supposed to win, it's more nerves. It's tougher to play the big points well because you don't want to make mistakes. You don't want to give it to them. Um, I just did a really good job of kind of getting through those, then getting to the semis where I'm playing Andre and then finals where I'm playing Rafa, and I can swing a lot more freer on the big points. And I know, I don't know, I'm just not playing that tight, nervy tennis, and I can really trust myself. I've noticed, and I've obviously known you for, for quite a, a bit, the celebrations for you now and the way you interact with, with the fans has become more dramatic. And it feels like you're allowing kind of that personality to just get out more over the last year, year and a half. And I'm wondering where that, that might come from. Well, I think it's always been there, but it's tough for me to like, it's tough for me to scream like crazy when I win a match at like a challenger in front of like 20 people, you know? Um, I just think I'm getting put, it's coming out because I'm just being put in these situations where it's like I'm playing in front of a home crowd, just thousands and thousands of people that are supporting me, and I pull out like a really tight 7-6 in a third match or something like that. Like that's just, that's emotions and a moment that like I, I haven't felt before, so it finally gets to come out. It's tough for me to kind of go nuts and celebrate when it's like not the right, I guess, environment for it. I'm finally being put in these situations where I'm proud of myself, proud of my achievements, and I have like the crowd to kind of like pump me up. You've been asked these types of questions for many, many years, and I, I know I've asked this question of you before, um, but in terms of American tennis now, the, the depth that you guys in Europe at the top right now that you guys have kind of created over the last couple of years, what do you think your win means in that grand perspective of, of just your generation and the generation right behind you? I think it's just show, I mean, it shows a lot of people that uh, in our generation that we can all do it. I know it brings a lot of belief to people. I got a lot of belief when Riley made the finals of Toronto. Um, whenever any of us have a good result, I think everyone else sees that and it's like, you know, can do that too. It's not too far away. And we have, we've been talking about this group coming up, but like as of now, we have so many guys in the top 40, like, so many guys that are about to be like seated at slams we could easily have like six or seven americans that are seated at like french or wimbledon so um it's finally time you know the people are coming up that next step is for all of us to kind of be breaking into the more into the top 20 top 15 top 10 but um you know i'm really excited for how everyone's kind of coming along do you think we're at that point where maybe we can retire that question and just say it's it's here now I think, I think people aren't going to accept that it's here until someone wins a Grand Slam, but yeah. we're getting there. Taylor Fritz speaking with our reporter, Mike Cation. From the singles champion in Indian Wells to the doubles now, where victory alongside Jack Sock brought back memories of 2018 for John Isner. With the same partner by his side then, Isner claimed the doubles title in the desert before going on to win the singles title in Miami, a final which as he described to ATP Uncovered, had added significance. To be able to close out that center court, the last ever match there, was very, very cool for me. The six foot 10 giant slays the youngster. From the United States, John Isner. Hey guys, it's John Isner here. Today, I'm gonna walk you through the 2018 Miami final. With cherished memories today, Crandon Park plays host to its final day of tennis before the Miami Open makes a permanent move north. I've always enjoyed playing in Crandon Park. The place has a lot of history. 
and to be able to close out that center court with the last ever match there was very, very cool for me. Emotional, isn't it, when we start to say goodbye to this place? It would be fitting, I think, if uh, we finish with an American champion. They've ruled uh, this place over the years. It's steeped in history. It's been the site of so, so many great matches. The final final here on Key Biscayne. You know, going into that match, I was playing some of the best tennis maybe I've, I've ever played. And it sort of came out of nowhere, because prior to that tournament, I wasn't playing well at all. First serves will be key, of course, for Isnat. Something he's done well in the last three matches. I definitely had more chances than he did in the first set. Kind of wasn't able to capitalize. Perfection at the tee. And he got me in a tiebreaker, and it was a really hot day. Alexander Zverev wins a tight opening set here in the final in Miami. There wasn't much in it, but it's the German that ultimately prevails. But the finals, the, the heat was cranked up, and I was pretty tired after that first set. Starting to just look like the heat and the intensity starting to take its toll. So myself to keep going out there, trying to hold serve, and you know at least stay even with him. He's not living dangerously here. I was able to do that and finally uh, nudge ahead at a certain point in that second set. Isner suddenly is energized. How rare to see him like that. Incredible reaction from John Isner, who's got the break and will serve to take the final here in Miami to a decider. I didn't really panic. I knew I was, I was still hitting the ball well and serving well. Scenes here in Miami as Isner saves a break point. I also did know that very good possibility I could come up short again at, at another Master Series in a final. Oh, it's getting better! And this time it's Zverev that'll take the applause. I got pretty tired uh, toward midway through the second set. Most times when I'm tired, I actually play my best because I know there's only one way to go about it and that's going after my shots and that's what I did. I'm not sure he's hit one of those winners from that position down the line all day. Just kind of going for my shots and they, they found their mark. John Isner ensures the last ever final here in Key Biscayne. We'll have a decider. A fitting finale in store. Uh, make it a one-set match and went in the locker room, changed my clothes and felt pretty fresh for the third set. Looks like John's going to take a time out here. He's got the bag over the shoulder. He deserves a rest after that effort. What a fantastic end to that second set. This place has come to life. Told myself, just do what I've done throughout that whole match. The first break of the final set goes the way of John Isner. I think I served it out at love. I wanted to win the point on my serve and I was able to do that. One down, that'll feel good. I do remember match points, 40 love. I had a feeling he was going to be leaning wide. John is not. 40 love. That championship point. So I told myself, I'm going T. If I just hit somewhat of a decent spot, it's going to be an ace. John Isner is a Masters 1000 champion for the very first time. That good, but I was able to uh, hit my spot up the tee and it went by him and that was it. How 
fitting in our last ever visit to Key Biscayne. It's an American that takes the spoils. Oh, it felt amazing. You know, that crowd was fantastic that day. The biggest title in his career. It was the last match ever in that cool stadium, so it meant a lot to me. He really lets the emotions go now. Another man who's been enjoying the winning feeling recently is Andrei Rublev. 24 wins and counting across singles and doubles already this year. Perhaps understandably, the Indian Wells semi-finalist ran out of puff in Miami, losing to an inspired Nick Kyrgios, but was still happy to speak with Mike Cation about his recent run of good form. last four tournaments have been, been a crazy for me, like two titles, two semi-finals, which I don't think that I have ever done before. So I think now the most important thing is to don't, to don't lose this mood, especially when if the things will not go my way, like let's say uh, some for sure I'm going to lose during the season, this is obvious. And uh, to don't let these losses, you know, to, to, to take control over me, to be in this mood like now that I'm practicing uh, much more relaxed, much more uh, enjoyable, you know, and uh, I think that's the most important thing now because like this is much easier to improve and to keep uh, like uh, keep yourself confident. Yeah. So how how do you do that? How does the team around you kind of? I don't know. That? We'll see if I can do this because now it's my first time when I face. Uh, I will face the moment like that after being a bit down uh, in the second part of last season, and now again I, I feel like inside for the moment I have the feeling that I'm more motivated than ever, and now is the. I think, like I said, the most important time is to keep this mood outside the tournaments, when I have to practice, when I have to, to live a normal life outside of tennis, let's say. So I want to talk big picture about just how your style has evolved. When, when you were younger and first starting to get to those higher level junior tournaments and, and things, that aggression, how did it come about and how was that style implemented early in your career? Uh, I don't know. I mean, let's. Uh, when I was a kid, I have a really good patience in a way. If there was some matches that I need just to play lobs, I would do it. I would do this for hours, you know. And that's why sometimes when we were playing against, I was playing against Daniel Medvedev, like when we were nine, ten, eleven, who who was also this type of guy. We were sometimes playing lobs one. I don't know one rally, maybe ten minutes. And uh, so, uh, since I was a kid, I had a, like, a, let's say, a, a huge patience to play long rallies, no problem. And then, as soon as I start to grow, I think, like, of course, obviously, I will. I mean, we didn't know how it works, what you need to do inside the court, outside the court to 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 prepare your body. And I start to grow. So of of course, I was not that fast. Let's put it this way: my legs were not able to. To, to move that fast, so but I had a fast hands and I was able to hit really hard. So I guess I start to compensate a bit when I start to play at juniors. That's sometimes not enough just to play lobs because at that level already it's not working. So you need to find other ways. And I guess I, that was to play aggressive because as soon as I was slow, slowing down, then uh, the people were 
taking the lead and I was not able to run or to defend really well to bring the balls back. So that's basically how I start the journey from juniors to pro with this type of game. And then when I start to work with Fernando, we start, of course, obviously working the right way outside the court, inside the court to improve the legs, to to try to be able not only just to hit the ball because it's impossible every day to feel amazing and to to hit heart and everything inside because for sure you will okay you can do this maybe for a couple of tournaments but then there will be some up and downs and when the downs will come you will lose much really easy because you will just will miss everything so we need to work to be able still if if i don't have the game to play aggressive to be able to to compete and that's how we were improving and some matches you can see that maybe i'm not playing that aggressive because i'm not feeling the ball maybe this match really well or some players that you cannot play aggressive you need to be patient you need to wait and now i'm doing this much better and better so part of that is that mental side and i know when you and i talked a couple of years ago in cincinnati that physicality and how much of a toll it had taken on your body how have you developed those two specifically to make sure you're staying with that intent? I mean, mentally for me, it's easy to work because uh, I'm enjoying tennis and I really love with all my heart. So to, to push myself to work, I don't, I don't need to push. It comes natural and uh, that's, I think, a good thing of me that I don't need to... Of course, there's a days when you feel really tired or maybe mentally destroyed and you don't really want to work now but it's like a couple of days out of plenty that it comes natural and uh, so that's why for me it's more I need to push myself let's say outside the court like uh, to, to do fitness with a good quality but on court to do all the exercises comes natural to to give my hundred percent every day and yeah so that's why. Miami is steeped in sporting tradition, from basketball and baseball to the NFL, MLS, and now Formula One with a new circuit taking shape and providing yet another sporting vista. Taking it all in has been Italy's number one, Matteo Berrettini, whose hand injury eventually, unfortunately, prevented him from playing in Miami, but who still spoke with Mike Cation. I mean, I'm a huge fan of LeBron James. Uh, I started watching NBA for him. I remember the finals in uh, 2011 against the Lalas, they actually lost, but I started following the NBA for that. So for me, watching the, like, them so close to them, and it was an unbelievable match as well. Like, I, I still have goosebumps, so it was really, really nice. Different sport, but great athletes, and I, I like the atmosphere out there. And obviously here in Miami, we have something very similar. We're in an NFL football stadium. I know you've seen the F1 track that is being built as well, the Miami Heater here. How are you balancing your tennis with also kind of enjoying the experience of Miami? Yeah, Miami is a city that can give you a lot, you know, like, so it's tough to be focused on the tournament sometimes, but no, it's, it's great, you know, I think it's great for the city of Miami, for the, the whole, I mean, for whole Florida, a lot of people are coming, are coming here during the spring break to watch the tournament. I think it's, it's really nice to have so many sports and same venue. Uh, the Formula One is gonna be it's gonna be really nice. I, I saw the track already. Of course, I saw the, the stadium. They I think last year they played the Super Bowl here, so it's a city of sport. In terms of your day to day over the last couple of years, obviously you can kind of go through stretches where you 
practice gets a little monotonous, travel gets a little monotonous. How have you structured your practice on a day-to-day -day basis so you don't get bored and you continue to have that same energy when you attack it? Yeah, for sure. Um, if you look from outside, like tennis can be just, oh, you're hitting balls, you know? So it can be like boring a little bit. So with my coach, with my team, we always talk about, okay, you like to do this, let's do this, let's maybe, we, we practice the same thing but in different ways in, in order to not get bored or to not get like that you, you always feel like kind of like you want to really want to do it really want to improve it and you set goals you know like small ones every day so in order to, to reach them and to feel like good about yourself and of course the traveling the last couple of years it got really I mean it was tougher to travel you know like the restrictions and everything there are less flights so you know the 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 travels and the trips are longer but it's like i said it's part of the the job do you on a on a day-to-day -day basis when you're at a tournament do you structure a practice more just to get loose feel comfortable or do you work on specific things for your next opponent uh normally no just like to feel loose to feel good in the court and then maybe the day before you know the day before the match i can think about like something maybe more specific about my my opponent also when I step in the court I, I think about myself about what I like to do and then I adjust a little bit to my opponent and I imagine with that there are a couple of specific maybe drills or things you and your coaches work on every single day what what are those if I'm gonna tell you then this the, the, everybody's gonna fear no I'm joking um, of course I'm never uh, I never uh, really hide it. Um, my, my weapons are my serve and my forehand, so that's the, the stuff that I work the most on. Um, it, it, it's important for me feeling like good on my serve. That's why the ab issue, it's, it's pretty bad when it happens. And, and my forehand, of course, it's important to return a lot, uh, working on my slides, the variation, you know, the pace and the, the spin. So that's what we work on. Finally this week, we return to the World Tennis Conference, supported by the Global Professional Tennis Coaches Association and the Seagal Institute. And after last week's focus on communication, this week it's all about court positioning. And to kick things off, it's the former coach of Gail Monfils, Liam Smith, who's also recently been working with Coco Goff. The factors that go into great court positioning, obviously, Game style is a factor, the technique that we have, um, the way we like to play the game affects the court position that we're in. The surface, the balls, the conditions, the type of opponent we play, what type of ball they strike, the things that they're good and good at, not good at, they're all factors in the court position we take in, in that match. And then what I really want to touch on a lot today is the, the situational-based part. So obviously, are we in an attacking position? Are we in a defensive position? Are we very much neutral in the point, uh, working the rally, if you like? And how does that affect our court position? And, and where do we need to move to, to get to the, the optimal place to have a chance to either turn a point around or close a point, finish a point, and so on? And then some of the, the tactical aspects that come into court positioning in general, because I think sometimes a lot of young players are just sort of told, well, you play this way, take this position in the court, play like this. And there's not always enough education or awareness of the situation and how that affects where you need to be in the court. One man who knows exactly where he wants to stand on court is the US Open champion, Daniel Medvedev. He often takes a very deep position on return. To be honest, I think it starts with uh, that... Uh, 
when I'm returning close, like many of the other players, I just feel like it doesn't work that well for me. Like uh, I don't have uh, this, uh, I guess, fast reaction to react to the ball and be able to generate power uh, from the serve of the opponent. So throughout my career, I tried different. I, uh, sometimes I was returning close, sometimes I was returning far. And uh, with time, I just felt like, okay, I see that I win more points and I'm able to, yeah, to, to play better when I return from far position. And then when some matches, it doesn't work. I, I can also adjust and we try to work on practice all kind of situations. But in general, I feel like it just brings me more uh, victories to be far. Former world number eight Janko Tipsarovic runs his own academy where court positioning is a constant theme. There is this fake narrative of players being aggressive from a static position. You have players which are feeling more comfortable on faster surfaces. Therefore, they stand right on the baseline or half a meter before the baseline and start hitting the balls very fast. And then you have players that stand, especially clay court specialists, that stand three, four meters back and hitting the ball very, very hard. But they are in both scenarios, irrelevantly if you're four meters behind or right on the baseline, there is no real aggressivity. In my opinion, the real aggressivity in a modern day tennis player is not being done with the speed of your arm, but rather how fast you're cutting the angles, covering the court and positioning yourself on court to take away time and space from your opponent. So in my opinion, what helped me tremendously that I purposefully put, first of all, myself and then in my coaching career, all of the players that I'm trying to help, I purposefully put them, depending on their level, three to four meters back with the sole purpose that every single ball that is coming to them, they purposefully need to go towards the ball in a correct movement and then go back and then towards the ball and then go back. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's simple because it's a simple exercise and you do this in any given uh, static exercise, but it's hard because you need one million repetition until this starts to become your second nature. And with both court positioning and tactical awareness, Tipsarovic believes that everyone, no matter what level, can become a better player. I, I don't believe in this thing that some players have better anticipation and some players don't. Players that have better footwork generally have better anticipation because they put themselves into a position to recognize short balls better than the ones that they don't. So if you're continuously being positioned three to four meters behind the baseline, and this doesn't matter about the surface, and you have this constant push from your coach, then you constantly need to go front and back and front and back and front and back. This is becoming your automatic reaction in your second nature that when a short ball in an open point environment occurs, you don't think, should I go? You are already there. Of course, it's not solely down to fitness and the position that you take on the court. Brad Gilbert has worked with the likes of Andre Agassi, Andy Roddick and Andy Murray and is very big on the opponent's position, also dictating strategy. I learned at a really young age, before we had computers, before we had anything, everybody's always focused on their game, always thinking about what they do and what they can do. 
I found it like when I was 11, 12, 13, 14, I found so few people talking about the opponent on the other side of the net, their strengths and weaknesses and whether, so that's how at an early age, I was always thinking about my opponent's strengths and weaknesses and what my game might do better on against somebody, you know, in those tactics. And it's amazing how many players and coaches focus on the player, on what he's doing, how he's hitting the ball, and not focusing enough on the opponent on the other side of the net, how to maximize their player's strengths and weaknesses. Liam Smith again. The tactical or strategic elements as to the sort of position of the court you need to take against particular opponents, especially when you start to play the same opponents over and over again. At some point, you start to face the same kids or the same players and opponents uh, over and over. So just being able to learn from past matches and even practices that you have with those players and then understand how you can make some small adjustments to, to help you be more successful the next time you play them or continue to be successful and understand why you're successful against that opponent. A lot of times when a coach asks a player, what happened today? You know, you can hear this from juniors. They got lucky. I can't believe how well they played. I played so bad, but it's not really about how it happened. And I do think it's really important for coach and player after player loses a match, maybe not right that moment, but watch the match together, learn. So I used to be at 15, 16, I used to write down a few notes in a little book after every match, what worked, what didn't work. Then maybe when I played that person back the next time, it wasn't like I said, we didn't have a computer. I couldn't go to YouTube. Ah, the forehand down the line, this guy, he killed me with. I'm going to be looking for it next time. I didn't hurt him enough to the back. Just to kind of refresh. So I do think that that's really important even today to make little notes to understand what worked and what didn't work. And for more from those coaches and many more like them, head to worldtennisconference.com where you can still subscribe to watch all of the content from the four-day event and check out our podcast channel over the coming weeks where we'll be making some of the live conference panel discussions available. Whilst you're on the channel, look out for an upcoming chat with Maureen Bao, Vice President at the IMG Tennis Academy in Miami. Well, worth a listen. For all the latest from Miami on the court, head to the ATPTour.com website or the ATP Tour app. And in the week where three-time Grand Slam champion Ash Barty retired from the sport, why not check out the WTA website to watch her emotional goodbye video. We'll be back next week to round up Miami. For now, from me, Seb Lozier, thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis. 